Good morning. Good morning. Awesome. You guys are lively. We're doing well? Yes. Great. Well, hey, what you just saw is a promo video for a new series that's starting here in two weeks on the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to take 15 weeks and preach through the first seven chapters of that book. And we're going to talk about what it means and what it looks like to be the church of God's mission. And yes, you're hearing me correctly. I didn't mean to say the mission of God's church. Uh, Man, go back to Genesis chapter 3, and you will see that even before sin entered the world, God had a plan to rescue the world, to restore the world back to himself, to save sinful people like you and me. Well, he sends Jesus, and he comes on this rescue mission, and then Jesus leaves. He sends the Holy Spirit. God establishes the church, and then he gives us the church, the mission that Jesus uh, started. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to act like that church, to be that church, And this is desperately needed, especially in the culture and the world in which we live in today. So be here, all right? Uh, Be in prayer. I believe this has the potential to really change and impact our church in a big way. And as always, invite some people to join you, okay? Before we get there, we still have to finish best sermon ever, all right? We got work to do. So if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible app, grab those things and go to Matthew chapter 7 with me. Matthew chapter 7. Today, we come to what I believe is one of the most terrifying passages in the entire Bible. If you were here last Sunday, you heard me tell you that uh, in this final chapter of this great sermon from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, he offers several warnings to us as his people to protect us and prevent us from falling into certain things. Well, one of the things he warns against is self-deception. You're going to see this today, but according to Jesus, there are many, and please hear that, not a handful, not a few, there are many people in the world who have deceived themselves by believing they're getting into heaven, they're going to enter God's eternal kingdom, when in fact the opposite is true. So here's what I want us to do right now. I know we've already prayed a couple times, but I'm a guy who believes you can't pray too much. Uh, I'm going to warn you, today's message is going to be heavy. It's going to be hard, Uh, and for those of us who have walked in the door today believing in some form of nominal or cultural Christianity, my prayer all week has been that God would wake you up to realities today that would forever change your life in eternity, but it might be a little tough to get there. So uh, I just want to stop and pray over our time, and I want us to pray and to ask God specifically to open our eyes that we might see if we're one of the many that Jesus is talking about in this passage. All right, so will you pray with me? God, uh, we just want to come back before you again and just acknowledge that we need you. God, we're just in desperate need of you today. God, um, would you show up? Would you speak? Would you move in this place? Would you move on our hearts? God, I am praying that if we are the people that Jesus is talking about in this passage, that you would wake us up to that. Help us to see it that we might take hold of truths today that would forever change our lives. So God, would you just uh, let your Holy Spirit move? God, I I pray that he would just uh, make this book come alive for us today, that he'd apply it to us and change us in ways that only he can. So God, be with us. We love you. We're grateful that, that you love us enough to say hard things to us at times. And so God, we're forever grateful. And um, God, we're just praying that you do big things in this place. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's get to work. Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. This is Jesus preaching. The greatest sermon he ever preached. Here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And here's where it gets really scary because these are people who think they're getting in. And Jesus says to them, verse 23, I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, or some of your Bibles might use the word evildoers there. So according to Jesus... Self-deception regarding eternal life happens in one of two ways. The first way it happens is through profession. Through profession. Jesus says that not everyone who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. That on judgment day, that day when we as people stand before him and we receive either justice or mercy, that many will call him Lord, many will acknowledge what's true about him, but they're not going to enter heaven. So how in the world does that happen? Like, how can a person acknowledge what's true about Jesus and still miss out on eternal life? Well, to understand the answer to that question, we first have to understand the vast difference between acknowledging Jesus and knowing Jesus. Acknowledging Jesus and knowing Jesus. If you look back at the passage, verses 21 and 22 uses a title for Jesus. It's the title Lord. And it's a title that refers to his divinity. So the idea here is that there are many people in our world who will actually acknowledge Jesus as God's Savior, Lord, and King, but they don't know Jesus as their God, Savior, Lord, and King. To better help you understand it, let me give you a picture, all right? Uh, Any basketball fans in the house? All right, a few of you guys. Come on, the rest of you get with it. Uh, Huge basketball fan. Huge basketball fan. Uh, One of my favorite players of all time is the great Michael Jordan. I was never a Chicago Bulls fan, but I was a big MJ fan. So let me tell you something about him. Michael Jordan, he was born on February 17th, 1963 in Brooklyn, New York to Dolores and James Jordan Sr. He's the fourth of five children. He grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, where he built his athletic career playing baseball, football, and basketball. He attended Emsley A. Laney High School. And can you believe this? He was actually cut from the varsity team his sophomore year for being uh, deemed too short to play at that level. How would you like to be that coach? That cut Michael Jordan, right? Like fire that guy. Get rid of him. Uh, He kept working hard. He grew several inches. By his senior year, he was selected to the McDonald's All-American team. And as a result, he was recruited by several Division I schools, and he finally accepted a scholarship to play at the University of North Carolina, where he majored in cultural geography. As a freshman at UNC, he was named ACC Freshman of the Year. In his sophomore and junior years, he was selected to the NCAA All-American team, and he went on in 1984 to win both the Naismith and Wooden College Player of the Year awards. Now, after winning these awards, Jordan decided to enter the NBA draft a year early, and he was selected third overall by the Chicago Bulls. He played 15 uh, seasons in the NBA, 13 for the Bulls, two for the Washington Wizards. And here's where it gets really impressive, all right? Michael Jordan is a six-time NBA champion, a six-time NBA Finals MVP, a five-time league MVP, a 14-time All-Star, a three-time All-Star Game MVP. He's a 10-time All-NBA First Team player, a Defensive Player of the Year, a nine-time All-Defensive First Team player, and he was also NBA Rookie of the Year. He's a 10-time NBA Scoring Champion, three-time NBA Steals Leader, a two-time NBA Slam Dunk Champion, 
He's the all-time leading scorer for the playoffs, the all-time leading scorer for the Chicago Bulls. He's a three-time AP Athlete of the Year, a two-time USA Basketball Athlete of the Year. He was named to the NBA's 50th anniversary all-time team. He's a gold medalist Olympic athlete, and his number, the number 23, has been retired by the Chicago Bulls, the Miami Heat, didn't even play for them, and they retired his number, and the University of North Carolina. That's impressive, isn't it? And I share all that to prove to you that I know all about Michael Jordan. Great basketball player. I know about his life, his family, his playing career, his accomplishments. But here's the thing. I don't know Michael Jordan. We don't hang out. It'd be awesome, but we don't. We don't text. Never had him over for dinner. Michael Jordan doesn't know that James Griffin exists. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 7 that there are many people in our world who are like that regarding him. They'll acknowledge what's true about Jesus, and they know all about him. Like, play Bible trivia with those people. They're going to they're gonna beat you every time. They have right doctrine. They have right theology. Pull them on this platform. Ask them about Jesus. He is God, Savior, Lord, and King. But the problem is the problem I pointed out earlier. He's not their God, Savior, Lord, and King. See, there's a disconnect here between the head and the heart. If you've ever wondered about the distance between heaven and hell, that's the answer. 18 inches. The distance between your head and your heart. Jesus is saying that a person can have a vast intellectual understanding of who he is, and that understanding do nothing to move their hearts toward him. And the result is self-deception. People who believe that they're fine, that they're in the kingdom, they're going to enter heaven one day because they acknowledge what's true about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They profess saving faith, but they don't possess saving faith. The second way that self-deception happens is through performance, through performance. This is the craziest part of the whole passage for me. Jesus says that on judgment day, many people will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. To prophesy means you speak for God. And there are two ways that a person can prophesy. They can foretell or they can foretell. Foretelling means that God, through the Holy Spirit, he speaks to you about future events, and then you relay those messages to the people of God. Forthtelling means that God speaks to you about present circumstances through his word, and then you in turn use the word of God to call people back to repentance, confession, obedience, the promises of God. So Jesus says there are going to be people who stand before him one day and say, Jesus, we did that. Like in your name, we did that. We stood up and we spoke on God's behalf. We opened the Bible and stood on platforms and called people to repentance and obedience. Jesus, we did all that in your name. There will also be people who say to him, uh, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. I don't know if you've ever encountered a demon-possessed person, but it is creepy, man. Like I remember several years ago being in Peru with a group of students on a mission trip. And we did this big outreach event in a public square I was supposed to preach, there were skits, there was music, it was a great night. But when we first got there, there was this dude walking around and you could tell something was wrong. Like, I mean, he's looking crazy, he's throwing his hair around, barking, growling, just wasn't right. So one of the Peruvian pastors that was with us said to me, James, that guy is possessed by a demon. So I said to him, like, I'm right here, I'm posting up right here. If you need me, I'll be right here. I'm not going over there, I'm here, right? And so I watched from where I was standing, this little Peruvian pastor go, and he got in this guy's face, and in the name of Jesus came against him. 
And I watched as, as he preached and proclaimed Jesus' name and freedom over this man's life. All of a sudden, this guy started shutting down and coming into his right mind, and, and eventually he left. Jesus is saying that on Judgment Day, there will be people who say to him, Jesus, we did that in your name. Like, we encountered demon-possessed people, and we came against him and cast demons out all in your name. And then finally, he says, there will be people who say to him, Jesus, we did many mighty works in your name. These are miracles, supernatural happenings that cannot be explained in human terms. So hear me, there will be people one day who say to Jesus, man, we, we healed people in your name. We prayed over blind people and, and sight was restored in your name. We prayed over crippled people and they walked again in, in your name. Jesus, we saw cancer disappear. We saw dead people raised to life all in your name. And look back at verse 23, this is insane. Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is a picture of Jesus, the Son of God, sending people to hell. That is not a part of Jesus or a side of Jesus that our culture likes to acknowledge or talk about much. It's not a side of Jesus a lot of churches like to talk about. But this is what's happening. According to John 5, 22, God the Father has given Jesus the Son the responsibility of making those judgment calls. He decides who gets into the kingdom, and he decides who goes to hell. And according to him, he will send many people to hell who did amazing supernatural things all in his name. That should remind us of how careful and discerning we need to be when it comes to not only our spiritual performance, but the spiritual performance of other people. I mean, Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, 24, that there will be many false Christ and many false prophets who arise in our world and perform great signs and wonders for the sole purpose of leading people, if possible, even his followers, his church, away from him. You know what that means? It means that not every supernatural feat comes from God. Do you know that according to the Bible, at times the devil will actually empower people to do supernatural things in the name of Jesus, not for the sake of his name, but to lead people away from him. But I saw this play out several years ago, uh, a good friend of mine. I watched as he bought into some really dangerous and unbiblical theology. It all centered on miracle signs and wonders. And so my buddy, he just kept chasing one supernatural happening after the next, and as a result, he started buying into a lot of false teachings because these false teachers were the ones who were apparently performing the so-called miracles. And then over time, these false teachings compounded in his life. He lost sight of Jesus, lost sight of the hope of the gospel, and eventually he walked away from the church and God altogether. You see, we have to be careful here. I'm not saying that we have to be skeptical of supernatural things. I am saying that we have to be discerning concerning their source. Not everything comes from the Lord. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Not everything done in Jesus' name is for his name. Just write that down. We're going to talk. Not everything done in Jesus' name is for his name. Well, James, how, how do you know that? Well, because that's the problem we see in the passage. There's a disconnect here between the heart and the hands. You have people doing amazing supernatural things all in the name of Jesus, but none of them were for his name. They were for their names, their honor, their glory, their reputations. So how about you? Like as you think about your life and all those things you do in his name, here's the question. 
are they for his name? Do you love the name of Jesus more than you love your own name? Do you love the honor of Jesus more than you love your own honor? Do you love Christ being made known to the world more than you love your reputation and, and, and uh, you being made known to the world around you? Are those things done in Jesus' name for his name? So, for example, uh, if you serve, like, why do you do that? Do you serve for his name or do you serve to get a pat on the back? Well, I'm going to serve because I want people to see me serve and they need to know I'm a good person, right? I'm serving because I want to be recognized. I want to be honored. Uh, let's say this. If you give, why do you give? Do you give for his name? Or do you give to receive special treatment or in hopes of potentially buying a seat at the decision-making table? Let's get really honest. Like, why are you here today? Why would you get up and put on clothes on the weekend and come to a church gathering like this? Why? Like, did you come for the glory of his name? I'm going to show up to Cross Point, and regardless of what's going on in my life, regardless of the week I've had, I'm going to celebrate Jesus and make much of his name. Or did you show up because you felt guilty? Or, yeah, it's just something you do. You check your box off the religious checklist. Went to church this week. Or, you know, I haven't been very good, so I'm going to go and I'm going to wash some of my sin away. Like, what is it for you? Is it about his name? Or is it about your name? These questions matter immensely because they remind us just how easy it is to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And if you're that person, hear me, you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself. Man, it is so easy, isn't it, when somebody asks you about your spiritual life to pull out your spiritual resume? Let me tell you about all I'm doing. Well, that's great, but Jesus says you need to slow down and be careful here. Because when it's all said and done, amazing supernatural spiritual performance does not automatically equal eternal life. So how in the world does a person get in? But if you don't get into the kingdom by profession or performance, how do you enter heaven one day? And with so many deceived people out there, like how can you know that you're not one of those people? Well, it's simple. This is something we teach all the time at Crosspoint. And I will keep teaching it as long as I'm your pastor because I want to beat it into your hearts and your minds. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Here it is. It's this easy. Through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. Not about profession. Not about performance. It's about a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Verse 23 reminds us of this. When Jesus says, I never knew you. This is amazing. This is what I love about our God. It reminds us that our God wants to know us. How insane is that? That the God of the universe wants to know broken, sinful, jacked up people like us. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to walk with us, speak to us, hear from us, uh, give to us, provide for us, bless us, be for us all that we need him to be. God wants to know us like a loving father knows his son's and his daughters. That, my friends, is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Right? Every other religion and belief system says, here's what you need to profess, and here's what you need to do. So profess these things, do these things, and if you're really good, by the end of your life, maybe you'll end up in a better place. God says, my way's different, my way's better. It's not about profession. Like, are there some things you need to know and profess? Well, well, yeah, but it transcends just intellectual head knowledge. It's not simply about performance. Are there some things that, that you're going to need to do as my son, my daughter? 
Well, yeah, because there's a particular way of life I want you to experience. I created you to live a certain way, but you don't do any of those things to earn my love, to earn my acceptance, to prove yourself. That's why I sent Jesus. He came into the world 2,000 years ago, and he lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you deserved, rose from the dead so that you could experience new and eternal life in my kingdom and in my family. So anything I ask you to do, trust and know that I only ask you to do it because I love you and I want what's best. My way into the kingdom is through Jesus. You enter into a relationship with him. You believe in his death. You believe in his resurrection. You make him your God, Savior, Lord, and King. So how do we know that we've done that? Like, how can we be sure that that we've actually entered into that relationship? Well, Jesus tells us. Look back at verse 21. Here's the test. He says, only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter heaven. That's the test. Only those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter heaven. Now, anytime we come across passages like this, I always want to be careful and slow down to clarify what's being said so that we don't leave confused. So hear me. Jesus is not suggesting here that you earn your way into heaven by obeying the will of God. Are you with me? Like we just taught against that. You don't enter heaven through performance. That's counter to the gospel. The gospel is not do all these things and you'll buy your way in. The gospel is, hey, uh, you can't do enough right things to buy your way in. But that's okay because Jesus has bought your way in. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of work so that nobody can boast. You see, I love this. God set it up in a particular way so that he gets the glory and we don't get the glory. None of us can sit here today and say, let me tell you why I'm getting into the kingdom. I'm awesome, right? Been in church my whole life. I follow all the rules. I serve. I give. I'm nice to people. None of us can claim that. The only thing any of us can claim is this. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm in need. And Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, has done for me what I could never do for myself. He's bought my way into the kingdom. It's not by works. It's by grace through faith so that we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ and in him alone. Are we alive in this place? That is good news, isn't it? Here's what Jesus is teaching. Here's what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that the true test of whether or not you have a relationship with him is obedience to the will of God. So in other words, the person who obeys the will of God proves through their obedience that they know Jesus and will thereby one day enter the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, a person can profess all day long what's true about Jesus, and they can perform amazing, supernatural, spiritual, godly things, but if they fail to walk in obedience to the will of God, they are proving by their disobedience that they most likely don't know the God they claim to know. This is what Jesus It's teaching here. It's not about profession. It's not about performance. It's about a personal relationship with him. And the proof of that relationship is obedience. Now, this raises a question. James, what's the will of God? Right? I know some of us are probably thinking that because we live in a culture today that oftentimes believes wrongly that the will of God is some elusive, mysterious thing that God likes to keep from us. It's almost like he's playing a torturous game of hide and seek with his purpose for our lives. And so we'll come across verses like verse 21, and we'll get all nervous and scared, like, how can I know his will and whether or not I'm obeying it? If that's you, can I free you up today? 
You want to know where to find his will? It's right here in this book. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. I've said it before. His will is in his word. His will is in his word. God hasn't hidden anything from us. Right? If anything, he's put on display his will in perfect form. He, he's written it down and given it to us in a book as a gift so we can know it. He tells us exactly who he is, who we are, uh, how and why he saved us. He spells out the details of his plans and purposes for our lives. He tells us uh, how to live the life he created us to live. And he gives us principles and commands to live by that we might experience life. He tells us what he wants from us, what he wants for us, where his way of life leads, which is why you and I need to spend time with this book. I mean, imagine the athlete who shows up on a Sunday and gets out on the field having spent no time with the team's playbook, skipping out on all the team's meetings. You think that athlete's going to have a clue what's going on when he steps onto the field? Not a chance, right? The same is true when it comes to you and me and God's will for our lives. If we skip out on the team meetings, what we're doing here today, if we skip out on being connected in, in groups with other believers in Jesus, if we don't spend time with this book privately, we will feel completely lost when it comes to God's will. And all that will do is cause doubts and questions to flood our hearts and minds concerning life and eternity. So you want to be sure of your relationship with Jesus? Here's what you do. You get this book out. This is where his will is found. His will is in his word. You get it out. You read it. And you ask some of the following questions. Am I walking in grace-motivated obedience to his will? Am I believing uh, and obeying his commands? Let, let me just reread that. Am I obeying his commands, not because I have to, but because I get to, believing that God is good and wants the best for me? Am I living the life God has created and saved me to live, listen to this, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude for what he's done for me through Jesus Christ? Please hear me. That's why you obey. You don't obey God because you feel bad. You want to prove something, earn something. You obey God out of love for God because God first loved you and he put his love for you on display through Jesus Christ. That's why you obey. Am I striving each day through the power of the Holy Spirit to know Jesus more and become more like him, not for the sake of my name, but for the sake of his name? Listen, if you read the Bible and you can answer yes to those questions, you can rest easy knowing that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. And let me just answer this for those of you who are thinking it. Uh, James, are you saying i got to be perfect, bro? That's not what I'm saying. None of us are perfect, including this guy on the platform, Right? There is a broken side of us, the Bible calls it our flesh, that will always want to sin until the time we see Jesus face to face. What I am saying is that there should be progress in the way of obedience in your Christian life. Right? It's not about perfection. We make progress while we're here on the earth, and then on the day we see Jesus, perfection. You with me? So you should be able to look back like a year ago and look at yourself today and go, wow, look at the progress I've made. I didn't like people very much a year ago, and now God's kind of helped me to love people. That's awesome, right? Didn't serve a year ago, and I'm serving people, not because I, I have to, but because I get to. I used to hate giving, and now I'm generous, and God's done that in me, and he's changing my life, and I read the Bible, and, and I want to do what he's asking me to do. And anytime I sin and I, I fail God, like I'm, I'm just so grief-stricken, I'm convicted because I want to get it right. Like, does that describe you? Is that who you are? Or are you the person who would say, well, I mean, I profess some things. I acknowledge some things about Jesus. I mean, I, I do some good things. I show up to church every once in a while and try to be a good person. When I fail God, I don't really experience grief and conviction at all. Listen, if that's you, if you're the latter, the second person, let me just say this out of love for you. And please hear my heart in this. If that's you, 
you need to wrestle today with whether or not you truly know Jesus Christ. Because there is a good chance that you fall into the category of the many and that one day, if something doesn't change in your life, that one day you will hear from Jesus those dreaded words, depart from me, I never knew you. In closing, in closing, there was a book uh, written in the 1930s by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, Bonhoeffer, a guy who loved Jesus, followed Jesus, he was a pretty bad dude. Lost his life trying to hunt down and assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was a German pastor, German theologian, and uh, gave up his life trying to hunt down this maniac who was killing people. And he wrote this book, and in it he describes what he calls cheap grace. And I just want to read a small portion for you. Here's what he says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Here's my question for us today. Have we bought into cheap grace? Have we bought into cheap grace? Like, are you that person who acknowledges what's true about Jesus? He's God's Savior, Lord, and King, but you've never made him your God, Savior, Lord, and King. Are you that person that... You know, if we asked you about your spiritual life today, you'd pull out your spiritual resume and show us all the good stuff you're doing. Are you that person who boasts alone in the cross of Jesus? Man, I'm sinful. It's not about what I've done. It's about what he's done for me. That's why I'm in the kingdom. Here's the million-dollar question. You ready for this? Don't miss this. Has Jesus changed your life? That's the question that matters more than any other question. Like, are you different because you know him? We live in a world today, in a culture today, that has bought into what is known as easy believism. Just say all the right things and believe some things, or you're going to be fine. And, and we see in the Bible that the Savior of the world is saying something different. No, careful. It's not about that. The question that matters is has He changed you? Is life different now? If not, then you don't know Jesus. And you need to come into a relationship with him today. And if that's you, I want to help you do it right now. So I just want us to take a moment. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes all across the room. And let's just kind of settle in. Just forget about the people around you. Forget about the distractions around you. And I just want you to focus in on the Lord. Here's what's about to happen for some of us. And maybe it's already happening. Some of us who grew up in church, who've been doing this Christianity thing for a while, some of us, we just saw ourselves in this passage. Like we've realized today, oh my gosh, like I acknowledge some things and I do some things, but I don't know Jesus. Here's what's happening probably to you right now. The enemy, he's in your ear and he's saying, yeah, 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 but, whoa, 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 slow down. You've been at church your whole life, man. Come on. You've been doing the right things for so long now. Like, that's not really you. What are people going to think about you if, if you say that that's you? And here's what I'd say to you. Who cares? Eternity is on the line. Life in God's kingdom and his family is on the line. If you saw yourself in that passage, like it doesn't matter if you're new to church, if this is your first day in church ever, 
or if you've been coming to church your whole life, if you've realized today, I don't know him, I don't have a personal relationship with him. And right now in your seat, man, I'd invite you just to pray and to put your faith in him. Prayer doesn't save people, Jesus saves people. There's nothing magical about this prayer. But I would just say to you through prayer, make this your confession. Just say to God something like this. Say, God, I'm one of the many. God, I saw myself in that passage today. I realized today that I can't do anything by my human effort to buy my way into your kingdom. But I believe Jesus has done all the work for me. And so God, I put my faith in his life, in his death on the cross for my sins. I put my faith in his resurrection from the dead so that I could know new and eternal life with you. God, would you take control of my life today? God, invite me into your family. Invite me into your kingdom. And make me into the person that you've created me to be. I say yes to Jesus. If you're in our prayer team, I just invite you to get in your places. And as you're coming, listen, if you just prayed with me, that prayer or something like it, and you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, would you do me a simple favor? Would you just acknowledge that by just lifting a hand? James, I, I just put my faith in Jesus today. I said yes to him. James, that's me. I'm one of the many in the passage. Anybody, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. There's a hand right here in the front. Just keep your hand up for just a moment. Our prayer team member, they're going to come and put something in your hand. Just a simple resource right here. Anybody else with their hand in the back? Anybody else? James, that's me. Just keep your hand up. When you get that resource, you can put your hand down. Anybody else? Awesome. Awesome. Praise God. We got a hand over here on the side. Awesome. You're coming. Just one more moment. Here's what's getting ready to happen in just the next few moments. Our band is going to come and lead us in a song. And most of us in the room, we've probably never heard this song. That's all right. One of the things that I love about new songs is they force us to really listen to the lyrics, to listen to the meaning. And so they're going to come, and I want to give you the freedom and the permission to respond however God is leading you in the next few moments. Like maybe you want to sit in your seat and just pray and soak in what's being sung over you. If you want to come and pray with our prayer team, they're going to be here at the front. And you can just come and kneel at the front of this room as an altar before the Lord. If you want to stand and and try to sing along with us and just celebrate Jesus, you do that. However God's leading you, you respond. God, I thank you first and foremost for these people who put their faith and trust in you today. God, would you begin the work that you've committed to to start in them, to complete in them when they finally see you one day, God. God, over the next few moments, would you just pour your spirit out in this place, do things in our lives that only you can do. God, we're grateful for the cross. We're grateful for Jesus. Grateful for your love and grace toward us. We pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ.